Hi, I'm Jo Evans and welcome to Cross-Section. A report came out this week from Oxford University's Reuters Institute saying that in the UK, 43% of people are extremely interested in the news. Interestingly, that's about 5% lower than the global average. But more than a third of people worldwide say they sometimes or often actively avoid the news. The number of people taking a strong interest in the news has dropped by about a quarter in the last six years. Uh, speaking personally, I've just come off holiday where I absolutely avoided the news for the best part of two weeks. But we, of course, ran our own Twitter poll on this on EA UK News Twitter. And our numbers followed a similar trend. 52% of people said that they follow the news closely, while 39% of people say they sometimes avoid it. Both a bit higher than the Reuters Institute, but I guess that suggests more than anything that people who follow us on Twitter are people that are generally more keen on the news. The report also said that people continue to selectively avoid important stories such as the war in Ukraine and the cost of living crisis as they cut back on depressing news and look to protect their mental health. A lot of what we aim to do here on Cross-Section is to help people process the news through the lens of our faith in Jesus. So Danny, Alicia, firstly, welcome to today's podcast recording. Um, but what do you think we should take away from this report? Well, like you, I've also been on holiday and also avoiding the news. Um, social media was turned off, deleted from my phone, and the only news I got was what uh, my phone decided to push to me through the breaking news notification. So I knew that Boris Johnson was standing down. I knew that Nicola Sturgeon had been arrested, but beyond that, not very much. Um, and then I've caught up in the last couple of days. I think people do avoid news, but they probably don't avoid it as much as they say they do. Um, I think people say they want to hear more positive news, but then what they read and what sells newspapers is the scandalous and the interesting and the intriguing, and it's the bad news and the controversial that people actually go to. So I think we can be a bit, um, I'm not sure how all the best way of putting it, hypocritical would be too harsh, but we wish we were looking for better news, but actually we get drawn back to the bad news. And I think that then just creates the cycle where we want news outlets to produce better news, but then actually the things that we engage with and the things that we read aren't always those stories. Yeah, I think it confirms what we've already known and discussed in this podcast in terms of the quality of news outlets and news stories and how are they articulating facts of an incident, a case, a breaking news headline, uh, and somewhat being cynical that they're being truthful in that sure. themes we'll explore later on in this conversation. I guess what I'm slightly concerned by is that latter quote uh, that you pulled out that people are avoiding news linked to the war in Ukraine or the cost of living crisis in an attempt to um, be mindful of their mental health. And whilst that's partly valid, I think as Christians, there's, a, there's an opportunity for us to remain engaged, active, prayerful, uh, both discerning the, the types of news outlets that we read in, but the mental health question or well-being point, how many people are actually monitoring uh, restfulness? There are other parts of our lives where we can, can monitor well-being rather than cutting out news. I think people live highly active lives, uh, lack of sleep, forever partying potentially, um, always engaged. Uh, and as Christians, we're taught about the Sabbath, the importance to withdraw and retreat, to be restored. Uh, and I think that's important so that we can remain engaged in the hard and difficult conversation. So as Christians, I would encourage us to, to practice the Sabbath uh, and not disengage from the world and news around us. And I think there are there are good ways we can engage in the news. I think being proactive about choosing to look at multiple news sources, different papers, so you don't always look at the same thing you always read, so you hear different perspectives. But I think generally social media is not a great way to get news because um, it does um, draw us to those the stories that go viral, the ones that are more controversial, that everyone has an opinion on. 
Um, and whereas some of the longer running news stories, things that might get neglected, it's interesting, the editorial decisions that, for example, um, news outlets would make around the war in Ukraine. Last year, when it started, they would be very loud, very busy. The whole news bulletins would be dedicated to it. But they know that after a while, people do lose interest. And actually, they want to um, hear about other things. So the news outlets stop talking about it so much. It's not that the story has gone away, but just that they know that people's appetite isn't necessarily the same as it was before. Mm. Yeah, I actually wrote an article on how we process the news and kind of how we handle the news when it's overwhelming in um, the Evangelical Alliance quarterly magazine idea, um, which is available for free to all our members. Um, And one of the points I made in that, which I still stand by, is that I think it's really important when we're dealing with the news, particularly when it's overwhelming, to acknowledge that, that God is infinite and God is all-knowing and we're not, and that as humans we have limits. And like I know for myself, I, I've spent time thinking about what are the stories, the kinds of stories that are just not healthy for me to read, either because I get too obsessive about them or, um, yeah, I just find particularly triggering for whatever reason. Um, and But even as we scan over news, um, headlines and and see what's going on we can lift those things to God he's the one who's actually capable of um yeah he knows every intimate detail of what's happening across the world across what comes into our news headlines in a way that we're we're not it's not our responsibility to fix the world um that's in God's God's hands and God's timing um but yeah you can tie all those threads together that we've just thrown at you and hopefully um, hopefully that will help you as you try and process the news this week. A, a week of news, which I think it's fair to say has been, there's been a lot of sad stories this week, whether that's um, in Nottingham or um, a story that we're going to start with. This is the story of um, a mother of three who's been jailed for more than well, perhaps up to two years um, for inducing an abortion after the legal limit. Carla Foster receiving the medication from abortion provider BPAS following a remote consultation where she was not honest about how far along in her pregnancy she was. The pills by post scheme, which was introduced during lockdown um, during the COVID pandemic, allows pregnancies up to 10 weeks to be terminated at home. However, Carla was between 32 and 34 weeks, about seven or eight months pregnant when she took them. Um, Dawn McAvoy is with us from Both Lives Matter, um, a campaign that's come out of the Evangelical Alliance. Um, Dawn, I wonder if a helpful place to start might be to talk about the law. Um, This ruling follows a law that's been around since 1861 and there's been calls for serious reform. Could you just talk us through some of the tensions that are going on here? Yeah, thanks, Joe. I think if you don't mind, maybe I'll just first of all say this is one of those stories that you've been talking about, you know, one of those harrowing um, pieces of news that are very difficult to engage with, difficult to respond to. Um, If anybody's been watching media and social media around this, uh, there are some people who actually are responding well, others aren't. I have spoken with people who just don't want to engage with the detail of it because it's too distressing. And I think tying that into us as as Christians, we have a God who is in control, who is the arbiter of truth, who is truth and justice and life. And I think engaging with this story and with the lives that are being lived, the lives that have been ended, but in light of our understanding that God is in control and he carries all of this in a way that we never will be able to is really helpful as we guard our, our well-being in engaging in this space. And for me, with Both Lives Matter, and this is the topic that I engage with most often, it is wearing. And what really struck me was the the fact that some people who are um, advocating for choice in abortion, even in this case, to me, aren't engaging with truth. 
Um, so if we sort of peel that apart, as you've said, this mummy ended the life of her baby who was eight months old in the womb. She knew what she was doing. She knew at what stage her pregnancy was and she lied about it to access abortion. The law in GB puts a limit on the use of abortion pills at home at 10 weeks of pregnancy. So by the time she took those pills, she was more than five months, nearly six months past that legal limit. And she knew that she was. That is why the judge was so clear in his sentencing because of her internet search history, because of her actions, because she had uh, three previous children. So she knew exactly what pregnancy was. He felt that she knew regardless of other circumstances, she knew what she was doing and that it was wrong. The law that she was prosecuted under is the Offences Against the Persons Act. And I find it fascinating when people want to discount and discard that law because of its age, dating from 1861. The Offences Against the Persons Act protects persons, and that includes both lives and pregnancy. So women, and unborn children. And anybody who argues that this mummy should not be in prison for what she has done, there is discretion in law given all the circumstances as to what offences are brought to prosecution and then how that carries through the justice system. But anybody who says she shouldn't be prosecuted at all, and that doesn't necessarily mean a prison sentence, my question back to them is, well, what would be the alternative in a civilized and just society? Do we say that violent acts don't matter in law? Do we say that lives being ended, intentionally ended, don't matter in law? Before birth, right up to birth. And I don't think that's the mark of a civilized or just or human-centered society. Mm. Yeah, it's, I guess it's helpful just for clarity's sake that this is a baby that um, would have, could have survived had it been born at this stage naturally. Um, I, I was I, born at that stage um, and that was a number of decades ago. Um, so there is no reason to believe that this baby would not have been born and survived if the chemical pills that were taken, which are designed mm. to terminate life pre-birth, hadn't worked. Mm, my, one of my reflections on this story, and I think, I think it is important to um, find compassion to Carla, the woman who did this, um, but something that has really struck me is going back to stories I avoid in the news. I tend to avoid reading stories about the death of children, particularly children that have been murdered. Um, it's just, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't really need explaining. It's just something that I find very upsetting and I know it's better for me not to read those stories. Um, but there has been a few of those stories and um, through a variety of circumstances of children that have been killed in the news recently. Um, some by their own parents and it just kind of struck me that it's the location of where this murder took place either in the womb or outside both viable lives that has made the difference of whether it's controversial or not yeah it's a really interesting and compelling point that um a pro an unrestricted unlimited pro-choice argument and those that are calling for um this offense to be decriminalized aren't really answering that point when should a life matter and how should the ending of life be regulated um there there's a lot of conversation that's just framing this as healthcare Mm. And healthcare, generally speaking, we acknowledge isn't 
the termination of life. It's enabling lives to live to their fullest, um, to be healthy and, um, and then come to a natural conclusion. So describing the termination of a life pre-birth as healthcare affects that one life in pregnancy. Um, describing the termination of life as healthcare, looking at the other life in pregnancy, which is the mummy. In this circumstance, the mummy's healthcare wasn't looked after or provided for either by the organization that has been tasked within the National Health Service and is paid for by us, the taxpayer. They didn't look after the health and well-being of either of the two parties involved here, the mummy or the unborn baby. So putting in place and continuing to defend a system that allowed a woman to access chemical pills to end a pregnancy nearly six months past the medical guidelines for that method of termination, knowing that there are weaknesses in that system that leaves it open to abuse, and now having evidence that it is being abused or has been abused and continuing to defend that system and not be held to account for that is appalling. That's not healthcare for women. So regardless of how you feel about abortion and whether it should be a choice, even if you say that unborn lives don't matter at all, if you're just talking about healthcare for women, this is, this is a farce. That's not healthcare. And the abortion provider isn't suffering any consequences from this act that they enabled effectively. It's the, the mummy that is suffering the consequences. And even if she hadn't received a prison sentence, the, the ruling um, comments that are publicly available make very clear that she has been left deeply traumatized, grieving the loss of her baby daughter, Lily, who's been named, um, suffering flashbacks, mm. left with the memory of her baby's face. Mm. So should she be in prison? I'll leave that up to the judge. Should this be a criminal offense still? Yes, because lives matter and the taking of a life intentionally matters. Should she receive a lot of support and care and help now? Absolutely. And ultimately be restored with her three boys to all being well, a loving family environment. But there has to be a consequence to this action as well. I find it, well, I think as a as a guy, I'm always hesitant to... to comment i often feel like um it's hard to to speak into questions around abortion and but for one i find it remarkable that bpass are not facing any consequences um yes they were lied to but actually it shows the the lack of any kind of checks that were in the system and that should expose something that needs to be resolved and not resolved by changing the law so that there are no checks but resolved so that they are required to ensure that they are following what has been agreed um so i think at one point i think bpass should face some consequences around this but i find the the narrative about um well my body my choice an interesting one because actually i think what what this has exposed is that it's not always about well or even primarily about one person's body it's about two people's bodies. And I think that's when, and I think for some people, the idea of a 32 or 34 um, a week uh, baby brings it home that actually this is a baby. This is a body. This is a person um, in a way that f actually they recognize that, wow, I might be in favor of, of access to abortion, but this is some, this is a life that has been taken. This is a somewhat this is a different body that has been terminated to use that language. 
Um, and I think there is some clarity that comes through this that is helpful, that I think does widen and open up some conversation. I, so I think while some people are responding to this saying, right, we've got to change the law um, so that they're, so it's not a criminal act, so that access to abortion is less restricted. But I think other people, this has been clarifying to say that this is what happens in late-term abortions particularly. And then that poses questions about what what kind of system we would want to end pregnancies at all and how we do that um and there's there's a there's a whole spectrum and i think it gets into quite interesting questions about where people reach different conclusions but i think the idea of a of a pregnancy being ended and a, a baby uh losing their life so late in the pregnancy does cause people to to think about this there were so many good points there and what you said, Danny. And actually the judge, some of, he answered the claims by some who are demanding that the criminal law be removed because they're saying this will um, affect or impact on women seeking legal abortions. His answer to that was uh, no, as I paraphrase. He doesn't think that it will impact women seeking legal abortions. What it should rightly do he says what he thinks it will do is limit people seeking illegal abortions, you know, so past the legal limit, which is what this mummy did. Um, and I do think, as you said, it highlights for some people who do hide behind the language of choice in healthcare, who don't want to think about the two lives, who don't want to think about um, pre-birth development, who don't want to actually come to a decision as to when that life begins and when it starts to matter or when it should start to matter and when the the life of the mummy and the rights of the mummy should be balanced with the rights of the unborn baby and the judge again says that the law seeks to balance both of those lives um, and you can't discount and shouldn't discount one all of that is really important if I could just possibly push back on where you started I know that you're an intentional invested daddy and I think one of the biggest problems with the my body my choice are my choice language and argument is that men feel that they can't speak into this issue and I think that is precisely and always has been the problem that men have not stepped up to their responsibility from the dawn of time you know, it takes a man and a woman to make a baby and both should be intentional and invested in that life, whether it has, is created and certainly when it has been created. So I would encourage you and other men to absolutely speak into this. You know, the vast majority of abortions, 87% are women whose marital status is given as single. So statistically, we know that women are terminating because of a lack of support. And I think that's a really good place to bring this back to. So stepping back from where this mummy is currently, my heart aches for the fact that she felt that she didn't have the support to enable her to be a mummy to a daughter as well as to three sons. My heart aches for the fact that she felt alone. She was hiding her pregnancy. She didn't have that support around her. And imagine if the church, rather than getting sucked into the choice language and who can speak and who shouldn't speak, imagine if the church, even rather than concentrating solely on law, said, you know what? We want to be that support community. We want to enable mummies who feel that they've no other option to choose life for their babies. We want to enable both lives to live together. And if nobody else is going to do that, we'll do that because life is a gift and it's a gift to us to get to co-create with God those lives, men and women, so that we have daddies, fathers, uncles, mummies, aunts, grannies, friends, you know, wrapping around. And hopefully these little boys, these three boys, will have that support so that when their mummy is returned, they thrive together. I'm glad Dawn um, challenged male listeners. I think that was at Danny, um, but it was an observation. Uh, and I think it is a paralyzing one amongst Christian men in this space in how to 
to speak up for the life of the unborn uh, and the, and a woman simultaneously, and sex being quite obvious in that. The second point is you mentioned Joe about getting my observations out before I forget. Um, how do we do compassion? I think Dawn has demonstrated in her address of Carla Foster by constantly calling her mummy throughout this whole mm. uh, interaction, um, which she is actually. Um, and I know that many news outlets would be calling her every other word under the sun to polarise the debate in their favour. But I think the fact that Dawn has kind of maintained that level of dignity and respect to what is a tragic uh, and awful case, um, our language matters in the conversation of abortion. So that's something else that I want to share with our, our listeners. I think going back to possibly the first question in terms of how do we discern and glean news, I haven't been following the news headlines on this because I just knew it would be polarised. I've heard parliamentarians come out with their response and engagement on this topic. I've heard campaigners outwardly say that even at eight months, it's a woman's choice. uh, And if she so choose abortion and the law should fit and accommodate that. And it's highly emotive. Uh, the only thing that I read in full was the judgment and ha- have encouraged our public policy officers to, uh, when they're in an emotionally neutral place, to read that judgment in full because us as a team will be engaging on this topic and it's important to engage with the detail of the judgment that was passed. Um, it is fair. It is balanced. It highlights both the circumstances. It outrightly says um, that deception was used in order to acquire um, the abortion pills. Um, And so, again, going back to that point about who's responsible, um, there's so many people responsible for this, uh, this situation, this this outcome. I think Carla is partly, um, Carla Foster, the mum, is partly responsible for this and I thought her opening remark that when she came out on Facebook one of the first things that she said it was that no one should be able to judge me and I thought that was revealing about the culture that we're living in at the moment um, as an initial reaction not even the judge is overseeing this case should even make a judgment on the decision that she made um, so yeah I, I think it's it's challenging I think it's going to be a long part of work the long road for the team and engaging on this because there is there are questions to be had around the healthcare system and the decision making that is allowing and enabling um these choices to be made as well as the grander conversations around the family and the role of men in this so i'll say that for now dawn thank you so much for for joining us this conversation and sharing your expertise in this area Um, I think it's been really helpful that all three of you have talked about um, how this will be bringing up questions for people who are pro-choice. And an article I read this week, which I I disagreed with, but I thought, you know, we've talked about reading beyond our echo chambers. So um, I'll link it on the cross-section webpage this week. It was an article in The Times the title was I'm pro-choice this is why I feel about the late abortion case um I it says in the title this the woman who writes it is is very um passionately pro-choice and yet she acknowledges in this article that this has caused her and her friends who are also pro-choice to tackle questions that um up until this point they have happily avoided um questions like when does life really begin um they all kind of reach the conclusion that there should be legal limits on abortion. When should they be? How do they decide when they should be? Um, And I think it's just helpful to not create a straw man or woman in our mind about what our our non-Christian friends might believe when it comes to abortion. A lot of what we seek to do here on Cross Section is to, to help Christians enter those conversations that our peers might be having and think what can we add as followers of Jesus and I think it would be easy to think all of my non-Christian friends would be pro um, abortions being readily available at any stage in pregnancy and I think I just found this article helpful for 
thinking actually that's not the case necessarily and um there may well be interesting conversations to be had and this might be one of those rare moments where it's a really relevant time um and a helpful time to speak about what we as christians believe joe i think could i just come in and and just agree with you there i find that a really challenging article um but i find where it finished fascinating because um the the author of the piece is she says that to believe in abortion rights is by definition to exist in morally gray areas mm. but then goes on to say well we don't know nobody knows when life starts conception six weeks 10 24 um who has a right to say that with confidence and then goes on and I just find that fascinating because I think where we go with this conversation, well, first of all, we have the conversation. So I believe that saying that both lives matter um, doesn't require any obfuscation or denial of science. I can confidently say from a scientific perspective, when a new life begins, we can then talk about when we think that life matters, but we know that science tells us that life begins at conception. Uh, we know how life develops pre-birth. We can talk about the law. We can talk about the outworking of the law. We can talk about the impact of the law on abortion rates. We can say that after over 50 years of abortion, rates in England and Wales, and most recently Scotland, are at their highest ever. So the pro-choice argument that law doesn't make any difference to abortion rates is false. Mm -hmm. We can look to Northern Ireland, haven't even talked about Northern Ireland, but we can look to Northern Ireland for those differences. So we can talk about science, we can talk about the law, we can talk about the lived experience of pregnancy. Anybody who's been pregnant knows what that means when they give birth, they know exactly what has been the result of pregnancy. And we can talk about government stats, so we don't have to make up numbers. We can talk to our friends and I think we can create a space where we can have conversations that move us outside of the grey into where we can talk about facts and truths and then we can talk about ideas but at the heart of all of that we need to remember that this is bigger than ideas and ideologies at the heart of this story a baby and a baby girl's life was ended and a mummy is now living with that. So we can't just theorize about this. We absolutely need to talk with people who disagree with us. And we need to talk in a way where we together, we might not agree on everything, but we can come to solutions, hopefully to craft solutions where this doesn't happen again. Thank you, Dawn. That's a really helpful um, place to, to leave this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. We'd love you, as always, to get in touch with us at Cross Section, to email us cross.section at eauk.org. Um, we'd love to know your reflections on this story. So, yeah, please do get in touch. I'm with Bethany McLeod, Public Leadership UK and Scotland lead. Bethany, what is the vision behind public leadership? Hi Joe. So as you know very well, the Evangelical Alliance is passionate about seeing kingdom change across all areas of society. We do that through our advocacy work, through our church and mission work, but we also do this in public leadership. So we believe that God has strategically placed public leaders in every sector of society and industry um, because he's at work and cares about every level of our lives. So for young Christian leaders in today's world, they are overwhelmed by challenges and pressures they face in society, whether that's financial or navigating social media and um, feeling lonely or facing discrimination and just thinking about how do I best follow Jesus where I've been placed um, are all really difficult questions that public leaders are wrestling with and that's what we want to address with our public leader program which we're launching this September. It sounds amazing who is the public leader program for? So we accept applications from people in their 20s and 30s who are already 
displaying some form of emerging leadership within their workplace. We want to hear about your vision for your public leadership. The 10 month journey is for equipping and encouraging young professionals and emerging leaders to intentionally and strategically take the lead. So if that's something that sounds appealing to you, we want to hear from you. Uh, we'll be running programmes in Scotland, Northern Ireland and England this September. And what about Wales? Yes, so if you were listening to the Cross-Section podcast a couple of weeks ago, you'll have already heard from our public policy officer in Wales, Nathan, that we're running an event in Cardiff in the Senate at the end of June. Um, so if you want to get involved in that, please do get in touch with the public leadership team and we'll have a few events coming up in Wales over the next year while we build up to launching the public leader programme there next year. But if you are in Wales and you're excited about the idea of public leadership and want to apply for the programme this year, we are welcoming applications for our England programme, which will be taking place in the north of England this year to make it slightly more accessible. So please do get in touch. Don't be held back by that. Great. Thanks so much, Bethany. I'm going to put the public leadership information on the cross-section webpage this week. It's safe to say that will have been the, the chunkiest section of the podcast today. Um, but we are going to talk about another theme that's been going on in the news this week. On Monday, Italian billionaire media tycoon and former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi died at the age of 86. Over the course of the week, there's been a lot of reflection on the way that he has influenced the face of modern politics and the legacy he leaves behind. It's been said that he was the inventor of populism in Italy, and there has been many parallels drawn, drawn between Berlusconi and other world leaders who we will come on to in just a moment. But Danny, let's start with the basics. Could you just outline what it means to be populist? Now, this brings me back to my political science undergraduate days. Um, when I studied the far right in politics, um, populism is sometimes considered as a as an offshoot of far right politics. It's uh, more complicated than that because it's often not on the right. It can exist across the political spectrum. At its core is the idea that there is an elite that are in charge and the people are being neglected by that elite. And it seeks to speak for the people. Um, so you'll often have uh, politicians who rail against uh, corrupt elites or say, we're speaking for the people. Um, those people who are in charge, uh, we need to, well, vote them out and vote for me because I'm representing the people. And that's the kind of common thread you see. It does often operate on the right of politics for Berlusconi. He led a coalition in Italy of a number of uh, far-right parties, um, some which had uh, origins in the fascist uh, days of Italy. So it often exists in that part of politics. But for example, Jeremy Corbyn was described as a populist as well, because he sought to speak against the elite and represent the, the people. Um, so it is a broader term. Now, the bit that's confusing is, shouldn't politicians seek to be popular? Mm. Because they actually should want to uh, represent uh, what many people uh, think and want in politics. That's what's at the heart of winning elections, is putting together a manifesto and a set of policies that uh, many people agree with and support, and therefore you're voted in. Um, so I think it's it, it can be a bit confusing sometimes because um, all politicians will have a sense towards that. And I think one of the things that's worth thinking about is how our politics has shifted towards more a more populist uh, approach where we do want kind of headline grabbing policies that people support and agree with, but might not work, but the headlines are popular. Mm. So Berlusconi um, was, has kind of been characterised by his disregard for how things should be done um, for rules, his, um, some would say, scandalous uh, relationships with women and his, treat I mean, lots of people would say, I would say, uh, <laughs> but his treatment of women, uh, the, he's, he's got this massive um, media empire, he, it's kind of been said that he's responsible for bringing scantily clad women onto Italian TV, um, there have been things, oh, I'm going to quote this right, um, the huge scandal around his 
bunga bunga parties um there's even this clip that's been going around um this week of him uh having been interviewed by a bbc female bbc um journalist and she shakes hands with hands with him at the end and fully knowing that he's still being recorded he says to her oh you shouldn't shake hands so strongly um a man will never want to marry you he'll just think that you're going to beat him up ties have been drawn um to other famous populist leaders um, such as Trump, um, such as, in fact, Boris Johnson. What strikes me as really interesting within this whole populist thing is that there are these three men who are supposedly representing, you know, the normal people against the elite. And yet these are all men that have led extremely elite irregular lives you know they're not the most relatable stories um Alicia do you want to come in with the whole how this might tie to Trump and and what's going on there nice easy question yes political leaders should be um seeking to be popular I think what the distinction is with popularists is that it in its core narrative what Trump Berlusconi Boris Johnson, even Jeremy Corbyn in a different way. Uh, and we're seeing populism rise within Brazil, within India, ascendancy in Italy and France. So it's not just typically these three, is that there is a, a narrative of them versus us. It's a thread that goes through how they engage on all issues. If we're going to go to the United States and we're going to talk about Trump, um, the them versus us is the language that came apparent more in his immigration policy, uh, how divisive, inflammatory at times he was in his language. I'm going to build a wall. Mexico's going to pay for it, for example. Um, if I was, you know, um, in charge during 9-11, it wouldn't have happened because of my immigration policy. This this kind of divisive language that kind of gives permission to whoever they think the people is to be as brass, unkind, rude uh, as possible. Um, I guess what is challenging, and particularly for evangelicals in the UK, is that with Trump and his, let's not think of Trump today because there's a lot going on in terms of his impeachment and court cases, but when he was president, there was a very strong backing of the evangelical voice and the evangelical church in supporting a lot of his policies um, that, you know, that we are now experiencing, whether that is immigration, whether that is to do with gender ideology and, and politics within public life, within education in schools, transitioning, whether that's to do with Roe v. Wade that soon came about. And I guess the challenge for us here in the UK is that Danny mentioned far right, but when people hear far right in the States, they often equate it with evangelicals because evangelicals were so supportive and endorsing of his policies. So um, all that to say, it makes the advocacy's work in the evangelical alliance highly challenging because they naturally assume that we are the evangelicals of the United States uh, on all the hot topics, be that identity, sexuality or abortion so I'll leave it there for now but thanks mm -hmm. for the well I think, <laughs> I think Alicia's taken us to a really interesting place in this about um means and ends and I think that's one of the one of the dilemmas that faced a lot of evangelical Christians in the U.S. was that they wanted to vote for politicians who would support policies they supported um perhaps particularly around abortion and the possibility and then the eventual uh, actuality of appointing justices to the Supreme Court that would lead to um, overturning Roe versus Wade. And so some evangelicals were really blunt in the fact that they didn't like Trump, but because of what they what he said he would do, they would vote for him because of the outcome. Um, and I think that is challenging. Now, we can look in hindsight and say, well, actually, can we weigh that balance up and say, was that worth doing? Um, 
Roe versus Wade has been overturned, but what did we get when we had Trump as president? Um, was it worth it? But actually, in most cases, we're not able to make those kind of decisions because we don't. You don't have hindsight. You don't see what happens. You have to look at someone's character as well as what they're promising. And I think that's the challenge is are we taken in by the promises of politicians or the headline grabbing approaches that says, and, and to bring it into a UK context, um, I know some conservative strategists think that if the Conservative Party managed to stop the boats, they will win the next election. And they see it as simple as that. If they can be seen to do that, they will win the election. Now, who knows whether that's true or not, but it simplifies and oversimplifies politics to such a degree that politicians go for those three word slogans. They get Brexit done, um, take back control um, that is so appealing because they often work. And I think that's the challenge for us when we engage in politics, that we're not taken in by just the slogans and the promises, but actually we look deeper at both the record, but also the character of the politicians we're seeking to elect. Mm. This is a conversation that I know we could carry on for a long time. Um, I think it's really interesting that, I let, let's draw it in with one more question. So all of these leaders um, have been, seen to call the all of these leaders Berlusconi, Trump, Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson you know just in the last couple of days have been caught red-handed um charged you know with blatantly things they've done wrong and they have taken that truth and called it lies and many people believe them um this quote from Donald Trump this week I just few things actually make my mouth fall open but he said um his persecution um was the most evil and heinous abuse of power in the history of our country talking about the country you know that had slaves for for decades and decades but anyway holding holding in where I want to go on that um do you think leaders get away with that now more that calling truth lies and vice versa do you think leaders get away with that now more than they once did well let's bring it really really current the day we're recording the report about boris johnson has come out around party gate uh which says that were he still an mp he would they would have recommended his suspension for 90 days um next week parliament will vote on that report and one of the proposals is that he won't have a former members pass uh, um, which might seem a technical thing, but actually it's quite a significant uh, verdict if they do vote for that. Boris Johnson has come out really strongly rejecting the findings of this committee, calling it a kangaroo court. Now, this is a, an inquiry he agreed uh, to take place. Um, it is not the committee that will have the say. It is all of Parliament, uh, which has a ma conservative majority in. Um, I don't know whether they will support the recommendations or not, um, but he has spoken in such a way because he knows people will listen to what he's saying, regardless of what the substance of the report actually says. And I think that's the problem we're at, in that people feel they can get away with presenting their version of truth, or I think Trump referred to alternative reality or alternative truth, um, because they know that that's what people are going to hear and listen to. Um, they're not going to take in the other stuff. Brings us right back to our question about news and where we're getting our news from. Um, when politicians think they can get away with just saying their piece and that being it, yes, they will do that. Okay. Let's, again, let's, let's park a huge conversation <laughs> there. We do have one last story today, but um, I think we're going to cover it in about three minutes. My mind was in this world of populist politics and um, this confusion of truth and lies and these statistics that have come out um, about how people uh, avoid the news, look for the news, whether they trust the news or not. Um, and this week, a new podcast from Radio 4, uh, hosted by Mariana Spring, the BBC's disinformation and social media correspondent, has come out. Um, it's called Mariana in Conspiracy Land. Um, and it's looking particularly at the town of Totnes. I'm a Devon girl, it's a town in Devon. Um, a kind of 
uh, quirky. There's lots of quirky like coffee shops and things, but also lots of um, stalls selling crystals and and yeah, it's quite a quirky kind of hippie place. Um, and it's it's looking at the influence of a conspiracy newspaper called, ironically, the Light, um, that has become popular in this town. Um, so I guess off the back of talk of populism, the Router Institute. Um, also found that more than half of those surveyed, 56%, worry about identifying what news is real and fake, particularly online. Um, so I guess the kind of question, I, I'd recommend listening to the podcast, firstly. I think it's really interesting. They're little 15-minute episodes. You can, you know, that's a walk to your train or a walk to the bus or whatever. Um, but how how do we know whether what we're believing is truth or a lie? Well, being a woman of the word and us being all Christians on this call, being a Christian podcast, um, the heart is deceitful above all things. Scripture endlessly talks about whether it's in Exodus, whether it's in Judges, the final chapter, whether it's in Proverbs, the phrase, everyone did right was according in their own eyes that perception, original sin, we can justify anything and everything that what, what seems right to us is justifiable. And I think as Christians, there's a discernment, not only in what we're reading and what the author is trying to convey and maybe sway or bring us to their train of thought, but that we have to be mindful that we are also simple people. <laughs> we, we need to be aware of how sin plays out in everyday life um and truth is only found in the person of jesus and the full canon of scripture this is why we need to be reading the bible daily there is nothing new under the sun ecclesiastes <laughs> in that sense of how man how humanity will seek to impoverish oppress pursue power take a lead over another and so reading the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other is a healthy way of how we discern what God is saying we, the church, need to do on a particular subject. What a wise and balanced place to end this episode of Cross Section. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you again next week. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.